0: This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. Today on the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, I am delighted to be talking with Jason Lewis. Jason is the founder of Responsive Fundraising, a consulting firm committed to creating places where fundraising can thrive. He's also the author of The War for Fundraising Talent, self-described as an honest yet hopeful critique of contemporary fundraising practices. And, big alert, he's working on a new follow-up book that's scheduled to be released in early 2023, let's say. We'll definitely entice Jason to come back when that's published and to unpack that for you as well. Jason is adjunct faculty at York College of Pennsylvania where he teaches nonprofit management, social entrepreneurship, organizational behavior and small business consulting. Jason also hosts the fundraising talent podcast which has been ranked as one of the most popular podcasts in the US, UK and Canada. Support for this show is brought to you by Bloomerang. Our friends at Bloomerang really understand fundraisers, which is why they make donor management and online fundraising software that nonprofits love to use. To learn more and to join them in their vision of building a world inspired by giving, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional fundraiser. Jason, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Tammy. Uh, You and I uh, have just enjoyed a few minutes catching up. It's been a while since we've been in the room together. Delighted to be here.
0: Oh, we are the fortunate ones for certain.
1: So let's jump in.
0: I think talent management is one of the biggest challenges facing the nonprofit sector. Not the only challenge, but amongst the biggest. I mean, we know that the typical tenure for a fundraising professional is 16 to 18 months, depending on what source uh, fundraising professionals are leaving the sector in record numbers. What's your point of view on the current state of the fundraising profession? Like, what's at the root cause of these problems? And, and how do we get better at attracting, equipping, and retaining great fundraisers?
1: Tammy, when, when, I, when I looked at that question, I thought about, I was just reminded of one of the key points that I made in the first book, and that's that I think I think as the fundraising profession continues to mature, which is a key theme in a lot of my conversations and a lot of my writing, and I think the fundraising profession we're, we're, we're maturing and uh, I oftentimes refer to fundraising as sort of where we all see it right now and where we're experiencing it. I routinely am saying that we're in the messy adolescence and some people are okay with that and some people not so much, uh, depending on how your view is on, on such a notion. In the first book, I, I make this distinction to answer your question. I make this distinction between sort of two camps, two camps of fundraising professionals, which correlates with the types of organizations that they work for. And I basically make the argument that, that if the organizations, I put a lot of, I put a lot of onus, I put a lot of responsibility on the shops themselves, the employers themselves, and I say that if you're working for a shop that sets you up to succeed, that puts you in what I, we talk about these three lanes and they put you in the right lane that aligns with who you are as an individual, aligns with your, your strengths, professionally speaking, and where your giftedness is, you can actually contribute to a thriving program. But I think what's happening is, is that we haven't fully made sense of some of these things. And consequently, we keep putting people in the wrong roles or we give them the wrong responsibilities. For example, you know, I will routinely talk to young fundraisers, and I'm oftentimes saying to them, get in front of the donor as quickly as you can, as often as you can, so as to learn how to develop that rapport and that familiarity and that trust, not so much in the particular donor, but just in the donor conversation. You know, learn how to have those conversations, because my, my opinion is, is that over time, we're gonna increasingly see, and this is a distinction I made in that first book, we're gonna incre- increasingly see our friends that are in, in technology be able to secure what I refer to as the initial gift. And I think that initial gift, it can come through any number of channels. And I think we're gonna increasingly see employers paying for fundraisers to focus on the subsequent gifts. So if you just sort of draw, just draw a clean line Between the initial and the subsequent gift. Don't concern yourself about what it's for, what channel it comes through, how much it is. And if you think about what our challenges typically are, I mean, none of us have to be convinced. You know, we get reminded every year with the effectiveness project that we really have a renewal problem. And I think that renewal problem is because we're all sort of competing over responsibilities for the initial gift, which things like galas and golf tournaments and high-capacity volunteers and direct response companies and technology and any myriad of platforms that you might use, those platforms are just going to get better and better. And fundraisers don't need to compete with that. Let them secure the initial gift. And then I think we're going to see more and more employers say, "Okay, we're going to let that function, what we call lane one, let that function belong to any number of one of those, uh, whoever that might be. Um, I oftentimes, I think the majority of us oftentimes see direct response companies being really good at that. And I say, let the let the direct response company secure that initial gift for you. And then I think we need to see more and more fundraisers who are on the payroll, the person like yourself or myself who've raised money. We oftentimes know that where we start to really shine, where we start to really create value for our employers, and where we start to do things that nobody else, quite frankly, can do is is to focus on that subsequent gift, is renew that subsequent gift, move that donor to a more meaningful level of support, and sustain that relationship. But if we're unwilling to sort of draw that line, and we're unwilling to sort of make sense of why one set of functions works differently than the other, I think we're going to keep seeing that turnover, you know, which is kind of where you preface the question. I think we're going to keep seeing that turnover because we're going to see individuals who want to essentially compete with technology and, and others who can do it better on that initial gift side. Or we're going to constantly see individuals who really don't want to get to the lunch table and ask Mrs. Smith for a more significant gift. You and I know plenty of institutions that have figured out that simple dynamic really well. And those are the, when, when I say the word thrive, those are the types of operations that thrive
0: yeah i totally agree you know and i think that when we start off in the profession and we typically do start off either at the event space or maybe Mm. in the omni channel the acquisition space and we have this vision the making it is to be a major gift officer or to to really do that face-to-face work and to secure large transformational gifts which is exciting and it looks so glamorous truth is it's a lot of work, right? It's a lot of work. And so, but what I find is that when you begin in that acquisition space, especially around direct mail, monthly giving, omni-channel, you know, the Giving Tuesdays that we've talked about before, I feel like there is a big jump to go from engaging donors from a keyboard to sitting across the table and that skill development, that confidence, that positioning, again, as we've talked before, the key is to really engage with donors, period, as peers, regardless of their wealth and their capacity. It's just such a big, big gap and such intentional work to bridge that gap. And what I'm wondering is the role of artificial intelligence and how will that accelerate the donor journey from initial oh. gift to, to transformational gift, and how will our talent, how will our fundraising talent, what trajectory, what's their path with that artificial intelligence as a tool in the middle?
1: I oftentimes, when technology, so some people think think I'm a Luddite, it's because I'm constantly selling this notion of what we call the messy middle, where the relationships are happening, where we put the relationship ahead of the gift. But I oftentimes sort of, I reference an odd, so Peter Thiel, a number of years ago, Wrote a book called Zero to One, and he was talking about technology. Technology, by any definition, so whatever whatever the technology that we're using, technology can either be what he he referred to as competitive versus complementary. And so, I think from a you know sort of a macro way of answering your question, I, I sort of have a macro and a very local way to answer your question. The, at the macro level, I think we're allowing you know, things like artificial intelligence to to confuse. Or to occupy a space where I honestly don't think it's necessary in the acquisition space. I just don't know that. I don't know that it's going to increase our efficiency, our effectiveness in terms of being able to acquire that gift. I don't think it's necessary. I think we I think we actually know a lot, and even to the extent that it would be useful. Again, I would. I would expect, for example, my directors. If I'm a. If I'm a chief development officer at a, you know, a small university right now. Uh, And I want someone to really have their heads wrapped around the role of artificial intelligence. I really want that to perhaps be the the direct response company to have their head wrapped around that. And that may not be somebody that's on my payroll. That's not one of my employees, right? That's actually a, a vendor that's providing me with a service to, you know, to re you know, to acquire and perhaps renew a large category of alums or something to bring some of that predictive analytics question to what I call that subsequent gift sort of space, I think the mistake is, is that we're we're allowing it to crowd our heads. We're allowing it to sort of, we're fascinated with it too early in the process. You know, it's kind of like the conversation you and I are having here that a lot of us are learning to how to have with our donors in, in virtual platforms like this. At the end of the day, you can't have a meaningful conversation with an individual than the than what the information that, might be useful later, might have for you, is secondary. I think we've confused ourselves and convinced ourselves that technology is going to do things for us that at the end of the day, we all know that it can't. And what it's doing, back to the first question and what we simmered on there for a few minutes, it's intimidating, scaring the hell out of our our fundraisers who think that, okay, once I get to the lunch table, we've sort of created this analytical machine that sort of tells us where this relationship's going to go. Quite frankly, when you're just sitting there at the lunch table, you have to know that lunch comes on time, that your waiter or waitress didn't dump a plate of food on your (laughs) donor. You know, it's just, there's so much that's unpredictable at that space that um, we've got to prioritize the unpredictable, the the relationship part of this before we get overly fascinated and overly um, enticed and what technology and analytics and those sorts of things are going to do.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels like an and strategy to me. It really feels like the machine learning or predictive analytics helps us. I mean, it definitely tracks over time donor behaviors and it it can better help us strategically prioritize who we should be at, at lunch table with right? But we still have to do the work, have the confidence to have those peer-to-peer conversations. Yeah. So it, it is, so, so it's a balancing act.
1: So think about that. So think about the distinction. So you're the chief advancement officer. And and this is why we sort of draw the line between the initial and the subsequent gift or what we call lane one and lane two. And what's happening there is the donor relation, the relationship is transitioning. You're The donors already acknowledge that you matter to them. They're already expressed a willingness to support. But if you've used any sort of predictive tool that makes the process more efficient, more predictable, give everyone a a greater sense of control, you have to understand that you got to almost turn, you got to flip the switch on that long enough to get to the lunch table enough and long enough and enough times Before you might want to switch that on again later. I don't know. I don't know. You know, it depends, but I think we've gotten, I think we're betraying or just completely overlooking the fact that at some point, all those tools are going to have to take a back seat just long, at least long enough for, for Jason and Tammy to decide if they like each other, if we trust each other, if Tammy can demonstrate that she listens long enough, that I don't talk too much, there's all these sort of human behaviors that you just can't predict. You can't put in an analytical machine.
0: Yeah, I do agree with that completely. <laughs> completely. Yeah. And so, you know, to build, I mean, I feel like if fundraisers can stick long enough in an organization where they can be mentored, where they can have those opportunities and those insights into relationship development, yes. There are tools that help us, but at the end of the day, we do need to engage person to person, especially at those higher gift values, or have donors at any gift value have the experience of being seen, heard, and valued as individuals.
1: You know, and it, 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 to, to reflect on your first question, mixing with your, your comments that you just made, a lot of us, you and I, and a lot of our colleagues, our peers that came into this work we're kind of taught, which is some of the stuff I'm pushing back on, I certainly pushed back on it in the first book, this idea that we follow that sort of linear path to going from learning how to do galas golf tournaments, the new acquisition, et cetera, et cetera. And then eventually we'd sort of maybe earn the prestige of being able to do some of the other stuff. And I think that's where where that gets dangerous because our professional identities, I know people who are rock stars at running all of that stuff on a payroll and not, right? And you know them too. You know people who can run events like nobody else can. You know people who know the art and science of direct response like nobody else can. But eventually your your professional identity gets wrapped up in that to such an extent that you can't put those tools down. Mm -hmm. You can't put those, all the metrics and all the, uh, we can't drop the tools. And and I think that's that's why I say to young fundraisers, you know, find an employer who will. If you're not one of those types of fun if you're not remark, I, I've never been. I was never the guy or gal who wanted to be, who knew I could deliver on direct response or special events. I knew I was going to always be gifted at the lunch table, for example. I think we can better better discern now who those individuals are. We can sort of maybe back off all the hype that institutions historically put around the idea of who gets the privilege of sitting at the lunch table with Mr. and Mrs. Smith and, you know, anticipating a $50,000 gift. I know plenty of 26- and 28-year-old young people that are are just as talented as you and I might think we are who could sit at that lunch table and secure that gift, and let's just get them there sooner and, and recognize that that's two different types of people. That's fundamentally a different skill set. I'm a person of faith. God designed, you know, that's a person who was geared up different.
0: I love that, that that it's not a, uh, again, as you said, a linear path, Yeah. but rather these are equally important to our organizations. Yes. Yes. Take specific skill sets and gifts and God-given talents and learned skills. And one is not better than the other.
1: No, no, you have to, you, you, need the, you need the most effective way to acquire a donor. And what that, what that process oftentimes needs to look like, it needs to pay for itself, probably doesn't necessitate a lot of margin. You don't want to go, you know, you don't want to lose a lot of money on that. But what it needs to do at the, at the end of the day, that acquisition process needs to create an opportunity for the organization to, th- to say thank you in a timely and appropriate way that aligns with what the donor's expectations are. And So if you're a new acquisition person and you understand that that's what that first what we call that first lane is designed to do to acquire the gift at break even perhaps and, a, and acknowledge it in a timely and appropriate way in accordance with the gift, you might shine there for a long time. You probably don't need to go anywhere else and there's probably a lot of direct response companies that maybe need you need to you, maybe you don't need to be on the necessarily on the payroll of a 501c3. But if you're not that person, you need to find an employer who will give you a space in front of donors more often where your job starts on the thank you call, not the ask. How many development officers do you and I know that needed to be given the opportunity to say that their job should have started on the thank you call? Thank you, Mrs. Smith, for that $500 gift on Giving Tuesday. And we have coffee next.
0: Hmm. Yeah. What I'm so present to right now, Jason, is that the way that our our profession is set up kind of creates turnover, especially for small shops, because most people say they leave an organization either because of their manager or they're leaving because they don't feel like there's growth opportunities. So if we are to create these pathways that are kind of by fundraising discipline, if you will, yeah. then, it, then there needs to be Maybe the growth is the embracing the next big best practice or emerging practice, embracing the next or evaluating the technology components that are always continually emerging and evolving because we have to keep people juiced about their position. I mean, I can be an expert at one thing and it can get old for me if I'm not continually growing. We've got a lot
1: of work to do as
0: a sector to figure out well, if these you think ca- about- career paths.
1: If you think about the challenge that you and I are talking about, if you think about what you just said, I don't think we have so much a fundraising problem. I don't think fundraising is rocket science. I don't think it's all that difficult. Oftentimes it involves two human beings on each side of a some sort of media, you know, some sort of an exchange process. What we're actually talking about is, is organizational design. It's ensuring that the executive directors and the board members understand how fundraising is institutionalized and designed into the organization so that they can see the value that the new acquisition function plays and the, what we call the messy middle, You know where you're taking Mrs. Smith out to lunch plays. And what organizations aren't seeing is they're not seeing all that. All they see is what one of my friends in the United Kingdom refers to as the instrumental view. And the instrumental view just says, fundraising's job is just to bring in more money more efficiently all the time when we need more you just turn up the knob like it's a machine and bring out you know bring in more and that, and that's a very mechanical sort of way of seeing it but if we start to see that there that the donor is sort of engaging us you know instilling a certain degree of trust with us during that that initial gift they're instilling trust and they're saying okay can you demonstrate to me that you actually know what I'm doing here and can you treat me differently than and Walmart and McDonald's does or something, and then if I continue to engage with you through that particular channel, can you eventually move me to the place to a different type of engagement when your expectations increase? I, I think that's think about what happened. Like when you think about on Giving Giving Tuesday, the average gift on Giving Tuesday is like one hundred and twenty-five dollars, and all of us know that one hundred and twenty-five dollars. Yeah, that gift matters. It doesn't go very far. And there's plenty of donors who are giving us that who can give more. We're gonna have higher expectations of that. And as that expectation increases, that relationship's gonna change. And the organizational design needs to be designed accordingly. Too many fundraisers, they're signing on for jobs that have multiple, there's too much. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I got I got on a tangent. Are.
0: No, I think we, we both went right down that rabbit hole. But I, I I think some of these are some of the conversations that need to be had. Like yeah. how can we create organizations that attract, equip, and retain great fundraising staff that create a meaningful giving experience for supporters at any gift level, right? And how can we collaborate to make the change we wanna make in the world. And it's complex.
1: Again, I'm referring to some of that, that research in that first book. So I looked at the health in the first book and I think it's I think before I even start talking about the Olive Cook story and some other things that, that really I wanted to get out there, I talked about some research that I had found in the healthcare world. Healthcare administrators know that if you can retain a nurse, it directly tells you how how the quality of experience and care is being provided to the patient. So what they have been able to figure out is, is that if we can keep a a nurse on the payroll, and the longer we can keep that nurse on the payroll, the better the patient's experience. And I think we need to, I think that directly correlates with what we're talking about. If we would focus on the fundraiser's experience and think about, okay, how do we because I, I, there's a lot of conversations, you know this, we've even used the language here in the conversation about the donor's experience. Quite frankly, I don't give a damn so much about the donor's experience so much as, let's think about what the fundraiser's experience is, make sure that it's do- designed correctly so that they can thrive. And just like we've learned with nurses, the donor will be well taken care of. This is a two-way street. I mean, you don't exchange a gift absent... Two willing parties on each side of the exchange of a gift, it doesn't work. And so I, I think if we focused more on getting Sally and John in the right jobs, getting them in the right lane, setting the right expectations, I think the donors will be just fine.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's real merit in that, truly. Yeah. So, you know, let's kind of talk about this newly coined term, quiet quitting. You know, where where employees aren't necessarily leaving their jobs, but they're performing like at the lowest acceptable levels. Like they're meeting expectations. So there's really two schools of thought. Some say quiet quitting is a sign of low ambition. You know, as my mother would never tolerate laziness. Oh, checking out. Maybe they're checking out or there's just a lack of commitment to the organization. That's one school of thought. The other school of thought is hey, this is simply a demonstration of setting healthy boundaries. You know, if we say we really value healthy workplaces and then condemn employees for wanting to contain their work hours or meet expectations, if we condemn them for wanting to care for themselves and find whatever level of balance works for them. Are we hypocrites? Are we paying lip service to this? Oh, mental health matters. It seems like there's two schools of thought. What do you think? Our friends at Bloomering know the importance of year-end fundraising to a nonprofit's longevity and success throughout the year. We know that 50% of nonprofits receive a majority of their annual contributions from October to December. To learn how you can make the most of this giving season, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional dash fundraiser to get your copy of the 13 year-end fundraising tips.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, Tammy, but was it, was it Penelope Burke? Somebody's a hero for you and I both, I suspect. Yes. Was it, was it her research that came out a number of years ago that said, let fundraisers have all the time off that they wanted. And was was, was that who that said that? I want to say we'll give her credit if it wasn't. I think it was
0: in her book, uh, Donor Centered Leadership.
1: Leadership. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it was it was the idea that because we're doing highly relational work and I would add because it's very unpredictable, you and I have both used the word complex here in the last half hour or so. It's just not something that can happen in this very linear assembly line sort of way of doing things, and I think what Penelope Burke was talking about there is that we ought to be one of those places in the economy that quiet quitting should be the least. It should manifest itself. It should. We should be one of those places where that we should be one of the last places we should be seeing that. And I think I was saying something of the before the, you know, long before the pandemic you know, put us all in our. You know, locked us all in our bedrooms, and like you and I are meeting here. You shouldn't feel like you have to. Like it should be that overwhelming. I guess is what I'm saying. We're we're in a especially if you're doing this. What I'm referring to is this lane to subsequent gift sort of fundraising. It's qualitative work, right? I mean, how many times have you and I been in a workshop or something, and we and we hear the conversations? Fundraising at its best should be qualitative work, which means quality of relationship that you have with the donor has a direct correlation with the size, the quantity of the check. If if we're going to try to make this a quantitative thing, which is usually where, which is where I'm hearing the same, you know, when, when we think about the notion of quiet quitting, I think it's because we're trying to get a quantity of work out of people, quite honestly, probably doesn't translate into better outcomes for this type of work. I remember, so Tammy, I had a gentleman on my, on my podcast, right in the middle of the pandemic, with the Naval Academy, I think he just got promoted to the uh, Chief Advancement Officer recently. I mean, he's doing really well, but he told me that in the during the pandemic, they experimented with basically just sliced portfolios in half, right? Cut portfolios from 150 names, 160 names to like 75. And he said they were raising the same types of money and engaging with people in ways kind of like you and I are doing because we weren't all hopping on airplanes during that time period. But they raised the same type of dollars. And, and if I reflect on that conversation that I had with that gentleman, I remember him, sounded like he was just enjoying his work. And I know he's still working for the Naval Academy. So I think we have lots of boards and bosses that they might like to get hung up on the idea of quiet quitting, but fundraising has never been something. We should be the last place that's accused. Of that. mm-hmm. Anything, this gets back to my argument too, about like outsourcing direct response. Look, if you have an, if you have a shop, if you have a shop that's mailing a lot of mail, outsource it to somebody who can do it better than your employee. Let one of our direct response friends. If you have a special event that Sally or John are not really good at running Outsource that to uh, you. Live in Detroit, right? I, I got to imagine, Tammy, you got plenty of event planners that could that could orchestrate your event and ten other events.
0: Absolutely.
1: Let them do that, and let them do it really well, and let your fundraisers focus on relationships. You know who the event planners are, right? I do indeed, <laughs> and they're they're amazing. You know, we hire that young fundraiser. We try to squeeze out all these skills and the best thing that, per- that person on the payroll can learn how to do is to, to have conversations with donors no differently than you and I.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one of the challenges we face as a sector, as a profession, is that our expectation is quality and quantity. Right. And that's why people get burned out or check out or begin saying, I, I'm going to do this and and I will, I just cannot take on anymore. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we are coming into a time where there will be a major reset. There has to be, and I, I think it will be a good, good thing.
1: Yeah, Tammy, so on the uh, when the pandemic, I was not into, none of us were anticipating, it's funny, I, I wasn't, none of us were anticipating the pandemic. I do not know what I was doing in March of 2020, but one of the things I had figured, we had launched the podcast and, and we doubled down. We got our sponsor to double down on their commitment. And we just started producing twice as many conversations. So the podcast became this sort of this chronicling of what the fundraiser's experience was in the midst of this 18 to 20 months, sort of, if you look at sort of what we did during that time period. And, and to your point, Tammy, um, I repeatedly found myself saying, are we about to experience what I refer to as a qualitative turn? I don't think I've said that in a while, but that's the—that's exactly what you just said. Are, is this reset that you're talking about? Are we about to experience this qualitative turn? And I think that relates to both the qualitative experience that both the donor and the fundraiser should experience on each side of the, the charitable gift exchange. And if you think about all the sort of the all the sort of mess that the fundraising community sort of managed is always that they've always managed to. To throw at each other in these theoretical debates about what methods we should use, da 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 da. I think at the end of the day, high quality experiences for those on each side of the gift ultimately, I think, is what, what it comes down to. But it, it requires an organizational commitment. I don't like, and I'm sure you don't either, I don't like consulting with clients where I don't have the opportunity to interact with the executive director and the board. Because I don't feel like I can influence their understanding of how this is supposed to fit sort of globally within the organization. You're just working with the the chief development officer, the the fundraiser. You're oftentimes sort of tinkering around with tactics. You've got to see it a little bigger. See a big picture.
0: I agree. And I think that if we can have access as consultants and advisors, if we can have access to... The CEO or executive director and board members, the executive committee, we can help shift the view of fundraising towards, you know, to create that culture of philanthropy whereby fundraising is seen as an investment center, not yeah. an expense yeah. center. Yeah. Because if, if if we take what you've suggested, and I love it, if we correlate the quality of the relationship and the retention of the fundraising staff, if we can correlate that to the retention and quality experience, aka gift up value upgrades that are a demonstration of that satisfaction of the donor, that's good for everyone. It's good for the organization. We retain fundraising staff. It's great for the donor. We decrease attrition we increase gift values over time and best of all we solve more community problems
1: and that's right, and, and that's not complicated but 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 you but listen to what you just said i mean we're ta- that's organization. that's an organizational design problem and i think to get back to to like use the word reset or my notion of a qualitative turn i think some of the people in our space need to perhaps reflect on conversations like this one and realize maybe fundraising isn't really the big bad monster that isn't getting, you know, when I refer to it as it's messy adolescence. Maybe those of us in the fundraising space need to sort of take up for ourselves a little bit and say, we've probably figured out most of how this works. And when the organizations start to adapt and evolve and sort of well position these different sort of functions that contribute to a thriving program, then you'll start to see the goals are achieved. Then you'll start to see the donors stick around longer, and then you'll start to see the fundraisers stick. We know what a fundraiser who sticks around for longer periods of times looks like. We've got data to show that. We also can look at that and correlate that with the size of the contribution. We know what that looks like, and we also know that the cost of that—you know—you're bringing in exponentially. You're you're probably compensated. Yes. Certainly, you're compensating those longer tenured fundraisers more, but you're bringing in exponentially more money, and your re- and your cost to secure those subsequent gifts is significantly less than than the acquisition cost. I think some of us in our space, you know, you and I and an army of us need to get together and perhaps point our fingers at the you know the fundraising. I think has got our act together for the most part. I don't think we've got nearly as much. For all the stone throwing that we do within our space, and some a lot of the picking and stuff, sometimes it looks like we're in middle school again. But I, I don't think we have as many problems as maybe we even think we do.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I mean, I think that it it takes some new thinking, some humans you know human centered design kind of thinking to course correct this, and maybe we haven't brought voice to us because culturally, to be a fundraiser. Up until this point, we've been trained to be a bit of a humble pie, right? That we've kind of bowed to power dynamics. And maybe it's time to say, we can fix this and we're going to do it. Who's in? Either you're with us or or you'll be left behind with the same problems that you're struggling with today.
1: I I remember. I remember seeing this probably 10 years into my career. What I think is of to this point, some little provocative to sort of point out, but I remember that Nonprofit Times every year publishes this top 100 voices in the nonprofit sector. And I remember seeing that early in my career. And I remember sort of running down that list and there was really no one who hailed from fundraise. There was really no one, you know, we didn't have AFP leaders in there. We didn't have the president of CFRE, you know what, whoever all these, you know, we didn't have anybody from CASE there. And I thought, why is fundraising sort of sitting in this, un, you know, necessary evil, awkward stepchild sort of position in the sector where we don't have a voice and representatives amongst a hundred people in the sector? And this was the nonprofit times, and nobody's sort of in that mix. I just thought that's just that's just that's not health.
0: Yeah, and I th- I think life according to Tammy, <laughs> I think it's because we as a profession. Take on shining the light on everyone else and standing in the shadows and just helping to like push forward our executive director and our CEOs and our brilliant clinical program staff or our professors or our docs, certainly our donors, our volunteers, like just shining a light on how fabulous everyone is because they are. Yeah. But that's why we don't typically show up on those on those yeah. lists,
1: yeah. But we do create them in, within our own space. I call it, uh, I, I I describe this as somewhat of a, occasionally I'll describe this as some of the sometimes we're a subculture. We sort of, uh, we exist in sort of this subculture within the sector and we do, we like to create those lists and, and, and create hierarchy and stuff within our own space. And I think, and this is part of the messaging that I'm working on with this forthcoming writing project I think we need to insist on being more integrated into the sector. I think we need to be a fully integrated component. And I think if we did that, we wouldn't experience some of the problems that we mainly do. The sector themselves would take us more seriously. Some of our voices would end up on a list like that, you know, because I don't think that we're fully integrated. We go back to what my friend, the the instrumental view that uh, Leslie Alboro refers to, if we stop settling for this instrumental view fundraising, more of an integrated view, I think we'll fit better, and CEOs will start taking us more seriously, et cetera.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to leave this conversation without us talking about your upcoming book. Okay. Tell us about it.
1: So, Tammy, I see myself as sort of this guy who's trying to sort of read patterns and events, and I, and I and I. I think about the the first the first writing project that I completed the book that we published in 2018 I zeroed in on the the Olive Cook tragedy that played out in the United Kingdom and the the burden that that created all the negative press that um and all the accusations that were thrown at the uh fundraisers in the United Kingdom and all of our colleagues on the other side of the Atlantic and then I think about some of the other events that some of the other things that have surfaced since then, right? if you think about right up until the time of the pandemic, you know, there were conversations about donor dominance, for example, about donors going too far. And that conversation got raised. Um, and then in the midst of the pandemic, we have our colleagues that are, are with the community centered uh, group out in, in, um, in Seattle. I think if you look in between the lines and, and a little beyond, if you kind of look past the specifics of each one of those situations, I think what it ultimately comes down to, and this is answering your question, I think we begin to make sense, Tammy, the fact that we have historically, our professional body of knowledge has been rooted in in one fundamental assumption, and that is largely that the donor and the consumer are one and the same. We've inherited a lot of our thinking from from our colleagues in PR and marketing, basically marketplace logic, And we never really did the heavy lifting of thinking through, okay, who is the donor? It was just a question that always sort of just remained vaguely there. We knew who the donor was, you know, figured, you know, it was just, it was, it was a question we never really took the time to answer. And I think when you look at these various different critiques that are emerging through the Olive Cook tragedy and the donor dominance situation and the, um, the community centered our folks what 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 our folks in in Seattle are pointing out to us I think what they're pointing out all of them is that the donor is not a consumer that the donor is not supposed to be treated the same way that businesses in the marketplace would would interact with their customers. And so the argument that I'm making in the forthcoming book, is that some of our body of knowledge, some of that underlying fundamental body of knowledge needs to be examined. And it may need to go back to that very early place in the process and ask, is the donor a consumer or is the donor someone else? And I think where we arrive at in the current sort of where the world is, I think we arrive at someone who looks more like a citizen than a donor. And a citizen sits on the same side of the table as you are, rather than a competitive marketplace sort of posture. We share the same rights and responsibilities. The exchange is more rooted in not your experience or mine, um, not always feeling good, but it's an expression of solidarity. We're on the same team. Think about what we just saw when uh, when the, the outbreak of the, the war in the Ukraine how many people were finding ways to express their support. I think that's a beautiful way to sort of begin to think about what I'm talking about. When you think about the charitable gift, even some of very small, you know, we're not talking about extraordinary gifts here, but people wanted to find a way to express their solidarity with the people in the Ukraine. And I think if we if we said, okay, where does fundraising show up like that? Where does it, where it, where it doesn't, you begin to make sense of perhaps why some of the challenges that we're encountering today are. What do you think? <laughs> I, I'm putting I, it really, You are the you're the first uh, person who's asked me that very this is the first time I will have discussed that in, in broad terms, very specific terms, what the message of the book is. So <laughs> well,
0: well, thank you. That's a real
1: honor. <laughs> and I'm just kind of shifting here. You can you can you can see I've got of shifting in my seat because it's a little nervous to put that message out. There
0: it's powerful it's powerful and you know it helps us make sense of you know for some of us who have been in fundraising for so long the donor is the hero conversation yeah
1: yeah
0: is so deeply ingrained
1: Yeah.
0: and in the conversation about you know community centered fundraising right that we are equal that there is a there's a, there are pendulums in both camps yeah. yeah. And, and what I find so exciting about this concept of citizen is that it brings that pendulum from both worlds, with, which, in my opinion, both have value, right? The donor is the hero, in my view. They're just not the only hero. Yeah,
1: yeah. And
0: so citizen brings both sides together because it's only in solidarity that we can solve these problems, fulfill our missions, transform the world. Yeah. So I will be as soon as it goes on Amazon. I'll be a
1: pre-order. <laughs> well, think about so if you think about who the heroes are. I mean, the citizens of the Ukraine. Think 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 about who the heroes are. I mean, let's sit on that for a moment. Think about who the the heroes are in that ongoing saga and story. So, in some ways, the donors, as we as we as Americans, for example, contributed. We wanted to be in solidarity. So to to, to, to sort of lean on that, that notion that we're all heroes, that's what we, is that, those are the heroes in that story. I mean, a lot of us are not, you know, we're looking at Zelensky and thinking maybe he's the hero and, and we're looking at Putin and maybe thinking he's the bad guy. And it's, so it's this good versus evil sort of thing. But in the nonprofit sector, in many ways, we're supposed to come together and sort of share that the evil the monster in our sector is is whatever the problem is that we're trying to yeah. solve yeah hunger so poverty fret, disease right it, it's never a, it's never another it's not the other side of the table it's not the it's not the you know and i think that's what the marketplace logic gets us in trouble because a, a, you know the marketplace logic generally sort of puts one against the other it's very competitive you remove that yeah we can all be heroes uh-huh. Um, and, and and solidarity becomes that um, that unifying process. And, and it, it also resolves some of the, I mean, think about how many conversations we've had in our careers, Tammy, about what are the awkwardness of feeling like we were selling something and what are we selling? And it, it just sort of clears some of that up. Indeed.
0: Well, Jason, you got me all whipped up. I I hope you have our listeners whipped up as well. I'm sure you do. At the end of each episode, I like to ask a few rapid fire questions to provide just a little more insight uh, for our listeners. And so are you game? Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Uh, I I, I can handle that, yes. Okay, (laughs) all right, awesome. Number one, what's the best fundraising advice you've ever received?
1: I was supposed to do this very quickly. (laughs) Um, A donor told me to learn how to read the Financial Times of the uh, USA today. Good advice. Good advice.
0: All right. Next, what book do you recommend to our audience and why?
1: Yeah. So there's two books that I would probably recommend. The first one is written by John Alexander. It's been very helpful. It's called Citizen's um, he's a gentleman uh, in, that has started the New Citizenship Project in the United Kingdom, and has greatly influenced my thinking. Uh, but another one um, is called *The Social Meaning of Money*. Um, Vivian uh, Zelizer, uh, she's a, um, a sociologist at Princeton, and I'll send—I'll make sure to get you the link. But
0: love it, and we'll definitely make certain that both of those books get. Posted in the in the show notes. What are the three most important traits a successful fundraising professional must possess?
1: I have been, because of the experience that I've had with the my own podcasting work has demonstrated that I think conversational skills top of the list. I mean, I I am absolutely convinced. I don't think fundraisers are convinced enough of this, but they're some of the best conversationalists that I've. I mean, three hundred plus episodes has demonstrated. Just like you and I have had a great conversation here today. Um, conversational is certainly the, the top of that list. Courage. Courage and discernment. Discernment's not a word. You and I would have learned that word in the church, for example. But I think being able to be both courageous and discerning, which usually comes out of conversation. Uh, there's, a, there's a word when you bring uh, wisdom and discernment together, uh, sagacity. Is a word that you get when you put the two together. I I think, as I I understand it, basically wisdom and discernment. When to move that relationship, you know, when to move Mrs. Smith away from galas and golf tournaments and Giving Tuesday, when to ask, you know, Mr. Johnson for a more significant gift.
0: Very good. What's your favorite fundraising tool or application?
1: Ooh, that's a. Or like I said, I'm a Luddite on the tools. <laughs> the coffee table, the coffee. Mm. Table. I think the coffee table is, and I'm learning, I've learned, You, I've got a coffee cup in hand. So you and I have turned this into a virtual coffee table. And, and Patrick Lenciani, the gentleman who wrote uh, Five Dysfunctions of the Team, he refers to, so his consulting group's called the Table Group. And he kind of would. I trust he would answer that. That's why it's referred to that way. Is because he sees the table as the as one of the most useful tools that we as human beings have. I so, love that. And and I and I think we need to really reflect on the efficiency with which you and I are literally hundreds and maybe a thousand miles away. But we've just created a, a wonderful coffee table like setting here that uh, that hasn't been terribly you know hasn't been re- been disrupted by the fact that we're not literally in the same room. Yeah.
0: Indeed, indeed. All right, so this one has the possibility of getting you into a lot of hot water. <laughs> the question is, and I say that because you speak at a lot of conferences, and so the question is, what is your favorite fundraising conference and why?
1: I just like those venues where I'm where my where my boots are literally on the ground. I don't like platforms so where I have felt so I you're you're right I've been invited to speak at engagements you and I have been at the same conferences before I think breakout sessions are oftentimes more because I think I'm more of a teacher and a coach than I am a speaker um, I've, I've I've observed some of your work Tammy and I've, I I know you work the you you have your feet on the ground as well um, I don't suspect that you're much different than I am in that I don't like to be up on the platform so I, I don't. Um, like the last event you and I were together there in Milwaukee they they allowed us to be on the on the floor if we wanted to. Yeah. That's a safe way to answer the question.
0: <laughs> You're very wise. But absolutely. <laughs> I know that we both make a very intentional effort to introduce ourselves and say hello to every person who comes yeah. in the room prior to the yeah. talk. Yeah. And we do love to get out in the crowd and walk and and face to face. It's like we come off the stage and to the very large table, so to speak.
1: I, I do think, and I think conferences are being challenged with this, but I, I think they're going to, I think, and they're, I think they're going to constantly be challenged with this. And I've said this on my own mm-hmm. podcast and had this come. I think conversation is going to become the norm. I mean, this is the work we do. And so I have had uh for example, I did an event uh, with the, um, the fundraising group on Cape Cod a couple of years ago and the last session that I did the sort of the end of the day keynote that I did they allowed me to almost like work the room you know work you know work amongst the people and have conversations that was not scripted at all but it was very you know it was designed to be more engaging and reflective on what they had heard and stuff but um yeah. I would say anybody who's organizing an event where you're having real conversations is definitely the ones I want to show up for.
0: Yes. Last question. Knowing what you know now about fundraising, what advice would you give your younger self just starting out in the profession?
1: Well, I've, I've sort of answered that and I'll reiterate it. It's that idea of getting in the front of the donor sooner. Yeah. Um, if If you're not... If you're not what I call this lane one fundraiser, which we've, we're not questioning the validity or the usefulness or the necessity of that lane one new acquisition work. But if that's not going to be your professional strength, get out of that work, surrender it to somebody else who's going to be a rock star at it and get in front of the donor. And I, and I don't, and I don't think it has to be a donor like a, a mega donor writing a big check. Just learn how to have, just like you and I are learning how to have conversations, learn how to trust the donor. Maybe that's what I'm I'm basically trying to get to is learn how to trust the donor and kind of like the three characters in the uh, Wizard of Oz. I haven't talked about the Wizard of Oz, but I'm a big fan of the Wizard of Oz. Know that the donor doesn't necessarily know where they're going or what they're looking for. You can't learn that if you're not in conversation with them. I think we think that the donor knows what they're looking for, and, and I don't think they often are. You can't learn that until you uh, engage with them and you find out that perhaps you can take them on a journey, you can guide them on a journey.
0: Mm, Beautiful. Jason, thank you for joining us.
1: Hey, it's been a pleasure.
0: (laughs) If you want to learn more about Jason or follow him on social media, we've included links to his handles in his show notes, links to his company. We'll also include links to his current book and the books that he has referenced during our conversation here today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast with me, Tammy Zonker, and keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. Until next time. Thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. Learn why fundraisers love using Bloomerang and grab your copy of the 13 year-end fundraising tips ebook at bloomerang.com forward slash intentional fundraiser. The link is in the show notes. That's it for this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser podcast. If you like this podcast, subscribe and download each episode on your favorite podcast platform. Share it on social media with the hashtag The Intentional Fundraiser and tag me, Tammy Zonker, and you'll be entered into a drawing for some great swag, books, and courses. And if you like today's show, you might also be interested in becoming a member of my Fundraising Transformer community, where I go live twice a month with my members, with fundraising training and group coaching to help transform those fundraising issues that keep you awake at night, where I pull back the curtain on how you can take your fundraising results to the next level. By teaching ways you can improve your development operations, create a results-driven, donor-centric development plan, strengthen donor relationships, improve your donor retention rates, and build a raging monthly giving program and a successful major gifts program and how you can approach each day to ensure you'll perform at your highest level so you can be the best fundraiser and the best person you can possibly be. You can learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.org forward slash transformers. Thank you for showing up and for having the courage and determination to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. Bye for now.